We can disagree. Democracy is an imperfect combination, an imperfect conversation between agreement and disagreement. When we talk about bridging, we're not talking about a conversion. We're talking about acknowledging someone else's humanity that we don't agree with. Welcome. You're listening to Uncommon Threads, co-creating societies of belonging, a show from the Democracy and Belonging Forum. I'm your host, Miriam Juan Torres Gonzalez. Uncommon Threads is a series of conversations exploring issues related to belonging, polarization, marginalization, and democracy in Europe, the US, and beyond. Each month, we'll share with you intimate conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners across sectors, individuals who share a commitment to strengthening democracy while centering the needs of marginalized groups, even if they may not agree on how to get there. These thinkers will help us grapple with the tensions in our collective work to build democratic societies rooted in belonging. In this episode, we are asking whether belonging and bridging can be a path forward in societies in crisis. Can a reorientation towards belonging, in fact, help counter division? And what is bridging? When do we not bridge? And what steps do we take to get to true belonging? Belonging is both a powerful and an ambiguous concept. It is essential to the human experience, something that can be deeply felt as well as its absence. It is a core need. Bridging is a strategy. It is a strategy that helps us turn outward to form connections and partnerships between dissimilar people. Our guests today are Johnny Powell, the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute, Rocío Martínez Sampere, director of Fundación Felipe González in Spain, Stephen Hawkins, research director at More in Common, and Nani Jansen Ravenloh, founder of Systemic Justice in Europe. This episode's conversations, to me, brought to the fore some of the inherent tensions when speaking of the practice of bridging and belonging. What does belonging rest on, and do we need something that binds us? For Rocío, citizenship is a promising concept, a conversation, a flawed concept, and one that raises a lot of questions, but one on which belonging can hinge on. For others in this conversation, citizenship is problematic. John, for example, told us that belonging is predicated on the ability to co-create, and it's not coextensive to citizenship, even though citizenship can also be important. In the conversation, which we recorded shortly after the U.S. Supreme Court decision rejecting abortion as a constitutional right, Stephen Hawkins asked the hard questions. If bridging is not the same as coming to an agreement, can it take us to less polarized societies? Do we need greater convergence in values? Or as Stephen puts it, some epistemological agreement? As Nani posited, there's many other questions that surface in this conversation as well. How do we ask those who have traditionally benefited from unequal systems to be the ones doing the labor without at the same time centering them? This conversation reminded me of the perennial dilemma in conflict studies, that of the tensions between peace and justice. Do we need to sacrifice some justice, some accountability in order to maintain peace? And can we really have peace without actually also having justice? These are questions that need creative solutions and innovative conversations. These are forces that sometimes seem to be at odds, but in fact, we need both of them. Perhaps sharpening our understanding of belonging is part of the answer. And as our speakers all agreed, we need to consider the roles that power and love play into this journey. 
I hope you enjoy this episode. I cannot imagine a better panel to get us started. I like to get us started um, with John. Um, John, it feels like today we're facing a superstorm of challenges from polarization, rising authoritarianism, the global climate crisis, inequality. How can a reorientation towards belonging help us counter the forces that seek to divide us? Or how can an ethic of bridging and belonging address the major crisis facing both Europe and, and the US? Are our responses inadequate? How can bridging and belonging help? And can it really help in different contexts? Well, thanks for the question. Um, and, you know, in the time that I have, I'll still take about five to seven minutes to answer this question. And of course, these questions could take five to seven days, so I won't be adequate, but I'll at least try to give some large outlines. I think, first of all, is to be deliberate. And what you experience in terms of polarization, in terms of um, a number of the fracturing that's happening, not just in the United States and Europe, but in actually the entire world. Um, a lot of it's driven by fear, uh, fear of loss. Um, there's also demographic changes that has been exploited, um, the fear of the other. And so one of the things uh, we like to do in terms of sharpening our understanding of belonging is think about what's the opposite process to belonging. And that process is othering. That process is basically saying there's some people, for whatever reason, uh, that uh, not only don't belong, but they are a threat. And it could be immigrants, it could be linguistic, it could be religion, it could be anything, because these are social phenomena. This is not inevitable. Uh, there's no naturally other group. Uh, and the thing that's important is not just people liking or disliking each other, it's when the government itself participates in saying that some people don't belong. Uh, and so we say the solution to that problem is not the traditional liberal solution of saying, we're gonna fix othering by insisting that all people are the same. Yes, we are profoundly um, connected. And as, as Stephen will say, we have more in common, but we're also different. And so belonging acknowledges that we're both the same and different. Uh, and that we don't have to give up our apparent differences to belong. Uh, belonging also is predicated on the notion that people get to co-create the thing they belong to. That is, people don't come in just as guests uh, that can be uninvited at any time. So I think that we haven't sharpened, we're beginning to, we haven't sharpened what we're trying to do. And Marin, as you suggested, each society, each country has its own way of expressing this. But virtually all countries, starting even with citizenship, has some way of saying to people, you more or less belong or you don't belong. You hear it's a guest worker, you hear it's an immigrant, you hear on a visa, we could take that away from you. Or you might have been living here for three or four generations, but because of the color of your skin or your accent, your religion, you really don't belong. I was in France several years ago uh, after there had been some riots in the suburbs doing some work. And uh, one of the, my hosts told me a story. He's, uh, his, he's black in terms of pigmentation. And he's saying, he frequently gets the question, where are you from? And he would say, Paris. So, okay, but no, where, where you, where's your family from? Paris. Okay, you know what I'm asking. <laughs> and what the person was really saying is, I don't care if you've lived here for four generations, you're not really French. You're not a Parisian. Um, and 
Um, the uh, so I think part of the thing is to be deliberate at various levels, and part of that deliberation, which you also touched on, Mira, in terms of bridging. So we, if we talk about people, can be different, have different perspectives, different ways of eating, different ways of dressing, different language. How do they come together? And one of the ways is bridging, and bridging is. Um, again, a concept that deserves a lot more attention than I can give it right now. But it's acknowledging not only everyone's humanity, they were all human. We all belong in the largest sense. We belong to the earth and the earth belongs to us. We also belong in our neighborhood. We belong in our families. We belong uh, in our communities. Um, but what about when we have differences? What about when we have conflict? What do we do with that? One thing to do with it is to deny the other person's not only being right or right, but say, if you hold that position, you don't belong or you're not human. We demonize them. Uh, and so it's important that even where we have disagreement, maybe especially where we have disagreement, to find a way to bridge, to find a way to hold on to each other's humanity, to acknowledge each other's humanity. And there are various things we can do, um, both physically and socially, uh, to bridge. But to begin with, it's just to listen. We're willing to... Uh, engage in what Tanya Singer calls uh, compassionate listening, to listen to the other person's story, to listen to their pain, to listen to their aspiration. And this may sound like a small thing, but oftentimes we push back because we think, well, I don't want to listen to you because I don't agree with you. But listening does not constitute agreement. It constitutes acknowledging our shared humanity. And then we can think about what can we do in terms of organizations, in terms of structures, in terms of culture, to say to people, uh, that we're listening to you, we want to hear from you, and we want you to listen to us. So that's bridging. Instead, what we do is what we call breaking. That is, we take the other person and say they're less than, we tell stories about them, we depict them in negative ways, we uh, exaggerate things about them, we flatten them. So to listen deeply is to recognize each other's complexity, to recognize each other's multiplicity. That involves bridging. Uh, breaking is the opposite. We flatten people. They become two-dimensional. We actually don't know much about them. We don't want to know much about them. We make up things about them. We, we don't want to hear their own voice. We talk about them instead of to them. Um, so those are some of the things we can begin to do. And uh, as you suggested, Mary, and this is uh, not just a U.S. issue. It's a, it's a European issue. It's a global issue. Uh, but we also have to respect that the different ways these processes of bridging and breaking and belonging happen. Finally, I'll just say, belonging is both a noun and a, and a verb. It's a process, it's dynamic. Uh, it's how we feel, but it's also how we're, we're seen and treated. Um, it happens at an individual level, uh, how do I feel? But it's also happened as a group level, how is my group treated? Um, so these are issues that uh, unfortunately will become more important as the world continues to change and as we become uh, more diverse through movement and immigration. Thank you, John. Rocio, I'd like to go to you next. Um, you are someone who's been um, involved in, in politics, in politics also in a country that's rapidly polarizing. You have vast experience with the work that we do with the foundations and in economics as well. And I'd like to hear from you as well, like whether we really are in a crisis of democracy, where do we spot those tensions or this crisis that we mentioned? And then how do belonging and democracy intersect? And what are the challenges that you think we're facing? 
Certainly. I, I remember the other day, um, I'm not going to say who, but she's certainly in this panel with me, that we were discussing some issues and, and she was telling me, look, at the end of the day, of all the problems that we're having, me as a young woman would have to choose a time in history to be born in terms of, of rights and recognition. I would certainly choose today, right? So sometimes it's important that we not lose the, the big perspective, right? But even if this is true, if this is true, it's also true at the same time, although it seems a contradiction, that we're fearing that we are like crabs, like moving backwards, not forwards, right? And that our democracies are, are really suffering from structural problems and certainly um, belonging or, or the recognition of our diversity and our senses of identity, that we all have multiple identities that are important, uh, that we live uh, with, with all of them, are, are suffering. Now, um, how, how, can we, how can we deal with that? Because it's true that democracy sometimes, the defense of democracy, say the word, I know it's not very appropriate, but it's not the most sexiest thing in the world, right? Because obviously when you defend institutions and procedures, this is not something that calls to our emotions. And at the same time, we are living in this world where politics and our, let's say, public conversation is highly emotional and with an hypertrophia of, of moralization. And this certainly brings problems to the understanding of the othering. So we're seeing at the same time this uh, phenomenon that, that John was just mentioning, that at the same time that we seek to recognize our belongings, our identities, that this is part of the human nature, we might be increasing the sense of othering. So how do we combine diversity with what unites us together? That is, at the end of the day, the, the most important pact in our societies is that we are all citizens, full right citizens with our differences, right? And, and I don't think we have um, the immediate solution for that. We are seeing, you were just mentioning uh, these last week examples that certainly worry me, but maybe, maybe, and I'm just uh, saying this out of experience from the work we do at our foundation, maybe the solution is to build bridges in other dimensions. Let, let me try to, to explain a, a bit more. In order to do not increase the sense of othering, the sense of political polarization that we see in Europe that is different from the polarization that I think we see in the United States, it has different dimensions, but we are seeing, for instance, in Spain, a huge political polarization. We have this initiative in our foundation that we call the Revolution of the Little Things, where we put very different uh, people, people from very different trajectories, very different ideologies together, and we make them discuss a very specific, concrete, and small problem to be solved. And they come together, and as, as long as the, the, the issue is, let's say, I, I wouldn't say technical, but very, very concrete, very, very small, very, very unideological problem, they come together, they normally agree, and this builds bridges to recognize the other, right? So 
maybe a, a solution to 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 the crisis of democracy that we are seeing, let's say, all over the Western world at least, is to try to build bridges in a, in other dimensions to try to strengthen the sense of citizenship that we are all we should be all full right citizens because sometimes my fear is that we are losing uh, the perspective right that the diversity of our sense of multiple identities that we all have and the recognition that we all have to have they can only come together in a institutionalized democracies with the strengthening of citizenship and this implies politics i know that this is not a la mode but this implies having a political project that treats us all as citizens and gives us all let's say a, at least a short term or a medium term project of progress where more or less we can all fit together because otherwise when the only issue of discussion is identity this makes it very difficult because either you have it or you don't so there is no combination there is no possibility of agreement between that we can disagree it's uh, democracy is an imperfect combination an imperfect conversation between agreement and disagreement so is this is not the problem but we need to have some some common perspective that unites us all right as long as we're seeing in our societies and this is like the good part right a, a conversation multiple voices that demand belonging that demand recognition that demand new rights in order to include them we need to reform our institutions to allow for more diversity otherwise this would be impossible to govern but we cannot lose the political perspective because if we only speak in terms of morality morality the moralization of politics implies that you know you're good and the other is bad and we need to return to the political discussion where agreement on things or disagreement on other things is what we are judging otherwise i think it's going to be very very difficult for our democracies to regain a path that can allow at the same time and and i mean it we need to do reforms on that because our institutions at the moment do not are not designed to include this diversity and we need to reform them but otherwise we will not be able to combine this citizenship that it is for everybody a full right citizenship with the diverse and the diversity and the multiple identities that we need uh, to to live with in in our modern societies right so i would say let's be, bring politics back into the table because i know that we are super politicized at the time at this at this moment but at the same time we are not speaking about what politics should be speaking so i know it sounds contradictory but i would say let's bring this uh bidimensional conversation back to the table otherwise it's going to be very difficult for us to find a path forward of reform with more diversity and more rights for everybody and i would leave it at that thanks a lot you muchas gracias a tú steven you have 
vast experience in, in public opinion research, um, in polarization. How does this fit into this conversation? How does belonging play out in what you've seen? How do polarization, belonging, and the current state of democracy fit with each other? Thank you, Marian. Um, well, I want to build a little bit off of what Rothio was saying there about having the big picture perspective and also about democracy being an imperfect conversation. Um, so just to sort of calibrate the existing feelings towards democracy relative to what the, the ideal should be. So in my view, the ideal for democracy is that most people should be a little bit dissatisfied all the time. Because as Rothio was saying about um, it being an imperfect conversation, agreement, disagreement, democracy is fundamentally a negotiation. And the sign of an effective negotiation is that multiple parties, both parties in the negotiation, are a little bit dissatisfied with what they got because neither party had a fully triumphant victory. And so democracy should always feel probably a little bit dissatisfying as long as there is a population that has a range and diversity of political goals and opinions and ideal perspectives. They won't, nobody will have the full entirety of the society that they want. And so democracy should always be a little bit of a frustrating game, but it shouldn't be agonizingly painful for any subgroup, um, nor should it be um, the triumphant full picture of what any particular group wants. But with even that lower benchmark for what democracy ought to feel like, um, the current status of people's feelings towards democracy does give reason to be concerned. Um, and I want to talk through what some of those points are. As Miriam mentioned, we've been conducting research on attitudes towards democracy in a range of countries in Europe. So France, Germany, Italy, Poland, Spain, as well as in the United States. And there are some things that are common across those countries and there are some things that are distinct. So I'll start with the things that are common. The first is a worrying lack of enthusiasm for democracy in terms of how it's functioning today. As I said before, I don't think it needs to be sky high, but it is low. And related to that is a very worrying lack of trust. Um, there isn't today in the countries I just mentioned any um, any country where a majority of the population trusts its head of state. Uh, in the United States, there is not any major national institution, not media, not the federal government, um, not major corporations that enjoy more than 25% of the public's trust. And so we see that there is a, a suspicion and a lack of confidence in their institutions that are governing society that is a problem that needs to be addressed. At the same time, there's not an alternative system that's competing. And this was one of our key findings from research that we did in 2019 and 2020, which is that um, there's not an, a voice for something other than democracy, which is making an active case in the Western world that instead we ought to have an autocratic system or that we ought to have something which has um, fewer, uh, less participation uh, from the citizenry. And so what we see is people dissatisfied with what they see as still the best possible form of government. Another thing that's really noteworthy about this time is um, we asked people across those uh, handful of Western European countries in the United States this question, what words would you use to describe your country today? And we gave them a dozen good words and a dozen critical words. So take a moment. What would you use to describe the United States today or the country you live in in Europe today if you could just pick one word? 
So the most common word we found in every country was divided. There's one exception, which is Italy, which picked corrupt first and then divided. But divided is picked by um, between 40 and 60% of people across countries. And positive words like united, like polite, um, come down around like two, 3%, maybe 4%. And so we're seeing that there is a 10, 20x higher reception or perception rather of division rather than of commonality. And so that feeling of, I don't trust our institutions, our society feels deeply divided, um, is worrying. And then compounding on top of that is a new trend, which we don't see everywhere. Um, in the United States, in Poland, in Spain, we see more of this. I would say more stable democracies like the UK and Germany see less of this. But um, not just competing perspectives in terms of different values, right? We see the same country, but once, for instance, um, rather than seeing the same society, but believing, um, I, I believe more in family values, and the other person believes more in individual freedoms, one's more traditional, the other is more liberal. This is a conventional form of political disagreement. What we now see is more of a fracturing of reality, where you take a year like 2021, which is a year of pandemic inside a broader global crisis of climate change with a change in president. And in the United States, for instance, we're divided on all three of those major big picture questions. Is the climate heating up? What's causing it? Is there a pandemic? And what's the answer to it? And who is the rightful president of the United States? Those big, big picture questions about the most fundamental features of our reality are now contentious. And so we would consider that a fracturing of reality and that poses a significant threat to our ability to identify problems and solve them collectively through democratic institutions. And so that's where we get to this point of the continuum where it isn't a single crisis of democracy. In Germany, we've just had a major change, uh, a new chapter in German leadership as Angela Merkel steps down and we see different parties, parties coming together negotiating a legislative agenda, agreeing on the major points of that, and then beginning a new session. And that from the perspective of an American looks quite idyllic and quite successful. And um, so we see that not every country in the West is, is suffering from a dysfunction, even if they are suffering from division and dissatisfaction and distrust. They're not necessarily struggling to actually achieve legislative goals. Um, but there are reasons to be quite worried, I think, about the democracy in the United States. And I'll just close my remarks by noting what some of those are, in addition to what I've already said. Um, and I think the big picture frame here is that major institutions are sensing threat. And in their sense of threat, their fear of the status quo changing in a way that would make them and the people they care about the most, uh, or they, they and the people they care about um, worse off. Institutions and individuals seem to be departing from their best guiding principles towards self-interest or towards a kind of partisan alignment. And we see this in um, on, the, on the right side of the aisle with the Republican Party and the way that their commitment to an objective reading of the 2020 election is not one they're committed to, in my opinion. Um, we see this also with this, a new type of a sense of threat, for instance, that Donald Trump would be reelected 
serving as the motivation for mainstream media and social media platforms deciding to give very little or no coverage to critical stories, for instance, about Biden's family and his corruption. Uh, these stories have since been corroborated, but they were buried at a time when they potentially could have helped uh, Donald Trump win re-election. And so these departures of commitment to the institutions of objectivity or to the institutions of de democratic fairness are worsening this crisis of distrust that we're seeing in the United States, where there's a sense that major institutions are allied with political parties and political outcomes. And therefore, you can't trust the media and you probably can't trust federal institutions and you certainly can't trust big business. Um, and this, this is a problem where as this sense of threat grows, the acceleration of a departure from guiding principles um, may also increase. And so um, looking forward to the rest of the conversation where maybe we can have some brainstorms about what, what it would mean for us to restore a sense of commitment to guiding principles of rule of law, democratic fairness, of objectivity in news reporting, of um, parity and equality and transparency in social media discourse. Um, because at the moment, I think the United States is in a dangerous trajectory um, in a way that isn't unique in the West, um, but is certainly very uh, concerning specifically um, and has parallels probably most closely in Europe in places like Poland and Spain. And so with that, Miriam, I'll turn it back to you. Thank you very much, Stephen. And John has talked to us about belonging, about othering and the other processes. It's talked to us about bridging and breaking. And Rocío was also mentioning the importance of the institutions. The truth is that like to advance belonging or to advance maintain human rights, oftentimes we need institutions that will defend them. And Stephen was mentioning as well, like the crisis of trust that we are experimenting, the role of identities has also come into place. But something that I believe is also a very real concern is what happens when it's just not about some political or policy disagreements. There are some human rights that we have been defending that, that were entrained in the declaration for many, for many, many years. We talk about social justice. We talk about identity and identity politics, but of course, there's also the need to protect certain identities and the realities that some people face. So, Nani, my question to you is, what are the challenges to belonging and to bridging? And in the democracy conversation, when we are thinking about social justice or speaking from a human rights perspective? I think that there are uh, three points in particular that um, I think are important to keep in mind when thinking of the idea of belonging and bridging, but also the human rights perspective in there. Um, one thing is uh, the importance of making sure that we actually embrace the idea of difference. You just pointed to uh, the fact that it's also important to protect certain identities uh, specifically because they can be harder hit by uh, the inequalities and the power structures in our society. So uh, as a human rights lawyer, uh, that would actually be a very important point to kind of like keep in focus. But from an activist perspective and from an organizing perspective, uh, I also think to think about it in a slightly more holistic way and really embracing difference also as a source of power. And I think that that's not necessarily contradictory to what was said earlier. There was an emphasis, right, on making sure that it's really clear that we're thinking about belonging, not as kind of like uniformity or as sameness. Um, but I, I do think that uh, especially in situations where we're trying to bring about bigger social change, 
embracing the difference and thinking of things as, as strategic unity are, are really important uh, because we're up against uh, really significant challenges. A second point um, that I think is important to think about is um, the need uh, in all of this to acknowledge um, uh, the historical inequalities and the historical injustices uh, that um, many of us um, have, have suffered and that are still present in our societies today. I think there are of issues such as, uh, you know, reparations, healing, restoration. There also has to be education. Um, and these steps cannot be skipped uh, if we want to get to a constructive place where of belonging uh, for all of us. Um, one of the participants in the anti-racism uh, roundtable conversation that we hosted last week was referring to uh, the concept of colonial forgetfulness uh, that we see uh, around Europe, um, the failure to acknowledge uh, genocides that took place, the failure to um, um, wanting to set up systems for reparations. And those are all things that we actually need to grapple with and face uh, before we can actually get to a place where we can have a, have a structure in which we can also, you know, disagree with each other in a in a constructive way. And another uh, kind of sub point there is is the the fact that we're seeing across Europe by different governments um the active uh, erasure of difference um removing the concept of race out of constitutions for uh, special protections against against discrimination um the lack of engagement with uh, collecting data on how different groups are treated differently within our societies. Those are all things that are actually are standing in the way um, uh, for getting a, a more just outcome uh, for marginalized groups. And the last point, that's a very practical one, actually, uh, and that's about the, the division of labor in all of this, uh, when we're looking at, at bridging. Who is doing the bridging? who is doing the work in order to make sure that we stop excluding. I think that a lot of that labor needs to lie with the people benefiting from uh, the systems of exclusion that we currently see, much more so than the groups that are being marginalized. But then at the same time, how do you balance that out with making sure that um, they don't end up being centered in the conversation once again and it all leading to an inequitable outcome for those who are currently being excluded? So those would be like the, the points for consideration I, I'd like to bring into the conversation. Thank you very much, Nani. We'll be right back. After the break... We will hear the speakers reflect on and debate on the roles of citizenship, consensus, and power. If you like what you're listening to right now, go check out Who Belongs, a sibling show also produced by the Othering and Belonging Institute. Dig through our archives and immerse yourself in conversations about building brighter futures by searching for Who Belongs? question mark wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or check out our website, belonging.berkeley.edu forward slash who belongs. Now back to the show. We are seeing a lot of things coming to the front in this conversation. Um, John, you talked about bridging, about belonging. We also hear the conversations about how on the one hand we need to make sure that there's space for multiple identities at the same time, like the need to maybe build a common project or democracy can, can falter. 
particularly in light of the events of the past few days, I wonder as well whether there are any times at which we don't reach. Because talking about belonging, I think, as a goal, as an, as, as, as an utopia almost, is, I think, beautiful and someone that would, something that would be difficult for anyone to, to object to. Bridging is a little bit trickier. And when there are some fundamental things that are being discussed, like how do we, how do we bridge? And are there any circumstances in, in which we don't, we don't bridge? And I'd like to invite you all to answer this question, but maybe we can start with, with John. Well, thanks for the question uh, and the conversation. Uh, I want to touch on a couple of points. I, so I agree, uh, it was suggested earlier that we bring politics or institutions back into the conversations. I think that's critical. So the, 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 the misapprehension about bridging is that it's agreement. And I would start going back again. So we talk, talk about belonging without othering. Belonging without othering. There are a lot of people who constitute belonging by othering. That is, you define your group in opposition to another group. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. And so to the extent that bridging is about recognizing everyone's humanity, but everyone, uh, there's no place where you say, okay, we're not gonna recognize that person's humanity. So even where there's fundamental difference, we don't have to struggle over those differences as Stephen suggested. It doesn't mean that we therefore deny people's humanity. And that's what makes this place we're in so toxic because it's not just disagreement, we're denying the humanity of those that we oppose. In the U.S. context, it's historical. In the U.S. context, it's institutional, where Blacks, where Native Americans, where women. Until 1920, women could not vote. So you have to struggle against that. But it doesn't mean in that struggle, you dehumanize the group you're struggling against. And that's the contradiction and tension. And I just want to make one small, I guess, adjustment. So we talk about human rights, and we also talk about citizens. Uh, it's complicated, right? Because... In the United States, there are 11 million people living here who've lived here most of their lives who are not citizens. How, what do we, how do we relate to that group? And, uh, or in parts of Spain, there's the Romas who are clearly citizens and they're not treated as belonging. So I think belonging actually extends beyond, I think citizenship is an important aspect uh, of a political project, of a national project, but it's not, uh, co-extensive. Co uh, so when we talk about human rights, that's different than citizenship. Um, so um, I think we have to be very, very careful in terms of creating too many conditions and too many exceptions to bridging. Again, if we start with bridging, it's predicated on the notion that this person disagrees with me, this person's maybe even hurting me, but it's still a person, it's still a human being. Now that may sound idyllic, it's actually not. Think about it. Most of the countries in Europe and in many countries like Canada actually eliminated the death penalty. What does that actually suggest? Well, if you go back to the debate, because all those countries at one point had the death penalty, virtually all of them, and when they moved from the death penalty to not having the death penalty, the discussion was this is a, this person's done something terrible. Maybe killed someone, maybe raped someone, maybe blew up a building. Therefore, should this person die? So does this person cease to be a human being? And, and sometimes the discussion took place in the context of a morality. Sometimes it took place in the context of religion. Uh, this person is still a child of God. Uh, 
there was still some recognition in the person's humanity. And in terms of recognizing this person's humanity, the real humanization took place not to the person that had, had, had done something terrible, but to the society itself. That when you dehumanize someone, when you break with someone, when you refuse to recognize someone else's humanity, you begin to destroy your own humanity. And when you do that as an institution, it's even worse. And then the last thing I'll say is that part of the thing that's roiling these, these threats and this fear uh, that was discussed by, uh, by others is the changing demographics, uh, is the fear of the other, uh, even if the other is not present, like in, in Hungary, for example, which has doesn't have a very large immigrant population, but there's a tremendous fear of the other, tremendous fear of change. I think we have to embrace the fear and, and by embrace and acknowledge it and then help people pivot to a future where we all belong, but all of us. So I would say uh, bridging is not easy. Holding belonging is not easy, but it's an aspiration we really should orient toward. Thank you, John. And I'll pass on to Rocio. Yes, John, but <laughs> let me, because Miriam was doing a, a very difficult question. It's like, when do we not bridge? Uh, do we always bridge? Uh, do we bridge, for instance, with um, non-human rights defenders? You, I mean, I don't know. I don't know, because bridging is indeed uh, a tricky thing. I understand it in terms of aspiration, but it's not always possible. That's why I was defending before that maybe we should build other sort of bridges that help to understand the other and then make bridging uh, again easier, right? But sometimes we need to acknowledge that it's not always possible. When I turn to citizenship, maybe here is a difference between Europe or at least Spain and, and the US. It's because when I say um, our most important agreement that unites us all is a full right citizenship, I understand that these citizenship rights are based on a um, liberal and progressive con written constitution that, that we have, right? So it's like, well, it's the place where we can, um, with some reforms that integrate diversity better, we can, we can, you know, at least find us uh, all together, right here. That 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 was that that's why I was referring to to citizenship. Because otherwise, it's sometimes it's difficult to breach, right? With people that are defending things that are, I mean, radically opposite to to some very basic to some very basic rights. So here, Miriam, I understand your question, and it has not an easy an easy answer. Second of all, uh, I, I I did I did say that we should bring politics and institutions into the conversation, and I and and I really think so. But I would add two other dimensions. One is ideas, because I think Nani mentioned it as well. Um, we have a narrative where equality is uniformity. And equality is not uniformity. Uh, it, we can be equals and diverse, right? Because it's treating the equals equal and the, the different different. This is equality. And I don't think we do have this sort of narrative, and we must insist on that, that it is possible to defend equality and defend diversity at the same time. And I think we need battle of ideas here. And the second dimension that it's more difficult to solve is power, 
because we have to acknowledge overall in this 21st century that started with the you know to to with the wall tower uh, with um with the attack of the twin towers then the financial crisis then the uh, the covid crisis um we know that where we hold uh where the power is decided which is a clearly a global conversation also um you know social media is is global global information but we do not have any sort of global power and we demand to to our national government things that they cannot deliver even if they want to sometimes they don't even want to but when when they want to deliver them they cannot so there's a structural frustration with what can we get from power and i think sometimes it's very difficult for all of us to have this power conversation but i think it's a conversation that we have to have right who has the power how do we control it how do we integrate or, or, or do reforms and on how these powers operate how how do we make them accountable and i think this is still a pending conversation that i know it's very difficult but we need to have it as well so i would bring ideas and power onto the table as well thanks sofia steven you wanted to jump in yes um i i want to jump in maybe to be a little bit provocative um i think i want to raise a question with the group which is about um whether we should be aiming for convergence of perspective um because I want to take up the the example you're suggesting um Miriam around abortion and the the change in uh, legality of abortion in the United States recently where um from one perspective and let me just pause and say parenthetically I I used to be a very conservative person and in my past uh participated in a right to life uh protests and rallies I've done I've done pro life um advocacy in my past debates and so on and that today I'm secular and pro choice but the difference between those two perspectives was not that I changed my perspective on the humanity of women it was that I changed my perspective on the humanity of the fetus and this is a very difficult ethical question where americans are on a sliding scale in determining where they see the value of human life emerging in the process of pregnancy and therefore i think that it's tempting to see this issue as one of bigotry or inhumanity on one side and progress and humanity on the other i think it's more complex than that um i marched alongside thousands and thousands of women uh who believed that there was something sacred and very fundamental what could be more fundamental than the right to exist in protecting those lives from abortion and so i guess the question is if we imagine 20 30 70 years from now in the united states that those perspectives still persist where some people view something sacred at the earliest stages of pregnancy and others do not how can we converge in a place of shared belonging how can we um how can we bridge that right without setting the goal of having us converge over time to a shared perspective and so i guess that's the question is um to john and to others should we be seeking to actually have less 
disagreement over our kind of worldviews over time, or should we see those as fixed and sacred parts of our society that we want to preserve? I'll give us a moment um, if we want to collect our ideas, because obviously um, there's a lot that's been placed in, in, in the table right now in the last few interventions. And I think that this conversation is interesting as well, because it is surfacing a lot of the tensions that we that we are experiencing in polarized societies, in societies where we're seeing an erosion in the trust in, in democracy, where we're seeing institutions that are necessary, but at the same time, sometimes are failing or being instrumentalized. Intentions that on when we speak about belonging, about citizenship, because there's a question as well about in a world where not everyone has access to citizenship, can we still speak about everyone belonging? And in a world where there are so big fundamental viewpoints, as Stephen was mentioning, can we not try to convince the other or ac accept that that convergence in opinions will not exist and still not dehumanize or demonize the other? Also acknowledging at the same time all of the institutional and democratic backdrop against which all of this is, is happening. So I'd like to invite the other speakers as well to reflect on Stephen's provocation or anything of what's been, what's been said. Mary, I have, have some thoughts, but before I respond, I want to make sure that uh, Nani has a chance to respond because she hasn't. I just have some very brief reflections to, so on, the, on the citizenship uh, point. I appreciate kind of like trying to think of that in the context of trying to build bridges to better understand uh, others to come to a situation of, of, of bridging and have a more binary choice, uh, so to speak. But reasons that, that John also just pointed out, I just I really struggle <laughs> with uh, looking at citizenship as a, as a, as a frame uh, to productively work with, not only because I do feel that it has that um, kind of like acknowledging other people's humanity just needs to be a fundamental choice that goes beyond that type of classification. Just the same way that we, you know, try to look at human rights as universal. There's all sorts of asterisks there, of course, as to like who, who came up with the system and who enforces it, et cetera. And here we come back to the question of power, but also because we are seeing on a daily basis how uh, citizenship um, and belonging quite often do not correspond uh, with each other, right? The example was just mentioned about uh, the Roma population in, in many different locations in Europe, but also, you know, not wanting to scapegoat one particular country, but uh, an example of like how citizenship still means very little for belonging is, is France, uh, where you can have citizenship all you want if you're a Muslim French person, if you are someone uh, who is descended from one of the former uh, French colonies you're still not going to be considered as a as a real French person, if I can put it that way. So the citizenship part is just, is really, is really difficult. Um, and um, so just to, to stop on that topic now, uh, and just one really brief um, comment on, on what Stephen just said, because uh, I'm really curious to hear uh, what, what John's response is to, to the provocation. Um, I find it a really difficult example to kind of like work with the uh, Dobbs decision uh, for the provocation because 
for convergence of perspective, I think this is it's exactly an example of, of, of where power is being wielded by a specific group of people, um, what came out of the Supreme Court uh, recently. If you look at public opinion in the US, uh, the decisions should have not have gone uh, that way. Um, so I think that there's a lot more in the mix then than like what do we all agree <laughs> on. Um, anyways, I'll, I'll stop talking now. I'm, I'm curious to hear what... Uh, what John has to say. Stephen, the, the provocation is, I think, very useful, but actually, you actually helped us at the beginning in terms of dealing with it, when you said democracy is not about agreement. So when we talk about bridging, we're not talking about a convergence. Uh, we're talking about acknowledging someone else's humanity that we don't agree with, uh, and to bring it, to make it a little bit more real. Many people have heard me before. I talk about my family. My father's a Christian minister, and in terms of uh, very much against uh, the right of abortion. We discussed that, not debated it. We discussed it and inquired uh, what each other's feelings were about it many times. And in that process, there was profound bridging. There was profound love. There was profound respect. There wasn't agreement. There wasn't a conversion on ideas. We're not talking about bridging ideas. We're talking about recognizing people's humanity. Now, actually, interesting, the research shows that when that actually happens, something happens. But more often than not, people do start to shift. But bridging cannot be about persuasion. If we're only listening to someone for the point of changing them, that's not bridging, that's persuasion. I'm gonna to listen to my gay son talk about being gay, so at the end of the discussion, he's no, no longer gay. That's not seeing him, that's changing him. And I think there are many more possibilities than, than what's let out. And I completely agree uh, with the idea that we have to look at power. I think power is part of the discussion. You, you, you sort of suggested, Stephen, that 20, 30 years from now, we still have this division. In 20 or 30 years, my guess is science will take this issue off the table completely. Uh, but that's not the point. The point is, is that when we disagree, how do we actually, through our institutions, through our structures, through our our efforts hold on to each other's humanity. I just wrote something on, on this decision, basically saying the institutions fail. Institutions failed before we got to this decision. And you follow what happened with the United States. I won't go through all the details, but uh, uh, President Obama nominated us on the Supreme Court a year before he got out of office. Mitch McConnell said, because you're leaving office in a year, we won't have hearings on this person, John Carlin. Amy Barrett was nominated and confirmed two weeks before the election of President Biden. Institutionally, the institutional apparatus for putting someone on the Supreme Court was violated for the point of overturning Roe v. Wade. So I feel like the institutional integrity, you talk about trust of institutions, I feel like we cannot trust the institution. The last thing I'll say, and I don't want to get too specific, President Trump is the only president in U.S. history that was impeached twice. Impeached twice. And then he had this, from my perspective, corrupt way of putting three members on the court. Should we be bound by that court, whether they, we like what they do or not? To me, that doesn't support any kind of trust in the institution. You violated your own internal rules to stack the deck. And now you're saying respect our opinion, uh, which is different than how should we think about uh, abortion and uh, pro-life and pro-choice. Uh, but I think disagreeing with people and bridging 
does not mean an ideological conversion. It means something else quite different. Thank you, John. Go ahead, Rafael. And this, I, I totally agree with with John Stephen about your your provocation. Just just let me add it. It's like you know, with this specific issue, right? A right to abortion is not an obligation to, right? And I and I think sometimes it's very important to understand that we need. I mean. I said at the beginning is a combination between agreement and disagreement, and, and disagreement is not distraction. We can disagree while we do it with respect and with without dehumanization. But uh, my position at the same time is that certain rights need at least to be allowed to exercise. Otherwise, it's it's impossible for you know for 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 the for the combination of disagreement and disagreement. So. For me, is a clear um, step back what happened uh, last last week uh, with the Supreme Court of the United States. Having said that, and coming back to the citizenship point, because I understand both John and Nani's points, obviously it's not it's, um, what we had uh, until today is not perfect at all. It's like far from perfect. Um, we uh, need more inclusion. But my problem is that if we want a society that uh, has the recognition of identity and belonging, an identity that it's a multiple identity because we have more than one sometimes, right? And we, we have this and we want bridging that sometimes this bridging is imperfect and sometimes even with Miriam's uh, before... Uh, question we cannot breach with some issues because it's it's almost impossible what do we have that um, unites us what do we have and to me a citizenship but I, I'm meaning like a, a, a full right citizenship it's not like you are just a citizen and have an ID card I'm not referring to that obviously right it's like a full sense of rights and obligation and from if you want a progressive perspective in terms of, of rights, I think that is at least a starting place where we can combine this, these issues that, that brings us here. So diversity and inclusion with a common purpose. Otherwise, I know I know the imperfection on that, Nani, but I, I, I cannot visualize a better uh, scenario. I don't know what a better scenario would be. And, and with a better scenario, I mean one that it's not reversible, right? If, if the power uh, structure changes. So I, I still think this is our best proxy to integrate diversity and inclusion. Just wanted to make this point because I know that you are in disagreement, both you and John, but that, that's why. But you can keep disagreeing, Nani, so I... <laughs> no, I, I don't want to kind of no, please, <laughs> have, have, a, have a really long debate. <laughs> I know, I'm interested. No, I, I know we don't have time for a long debate next so time. Why don't we just uh, revisit this another time? I'd love to talk about this a little bit more. There's an issue with the reversibility <laughs> question. I think also with the diversity and inclusion <laughs> uh, framing. But um, yeah, that would that would take me a little while. Um, so. I'm, I'm sure that uh, Miriam might uh, also want to talk about some other things, but let's let's park this one. <laughs> well, before we completely park it, let me just... Go ahead, John, and then we'll move on to Stephen. Okay, I agree 
Uh, so again, the point is not really agree or disagree, but I think there are better solutions. And I think you actually pointed to one when you talked about global power. Uh, so someone's humanity should not be determined by where they live. It's like, or if they're stateless, I think, I believe, and would, would posit that everyone belongs, everyone belongs. And I'm not saying that everyone has all the same rights, uh, but we are living in a, a world that's increasingly global. Uh, we made it, you talk about structural problems, we make it so that capital can flip around the world in nanoseconds, and yet people are stuck at borders. Uh, so I think that we can do something better. We have to align the structures together. But at a minimum, I would say, when we talk about human rights, we don't say human rights depending on your citizenship. We say they're basic human rights that should not be violated. And I would say belonging is one of those things we should aspire to, that people should count and be treated with dignity and respect. And it's not based on them being French or, or Spanish or American. It's based on them being human, based on them being alive. And how do we get there? I don't know. But I think we don't get there unless we hold on to it. But in the meantime, I agree, citizenship is important. But I wrote a piece where I talk about membership, deliberately not talking about citizenship. Because like I said, what do we do about the 11 million people living in the United States who don't have citizenship? Yeah, this is surfacing interesting things as well in how we talk about things. And then like the reality is that we are in different contexts where these words also have separate and not necessarily, well, not necessarily equal, equal meanings. Then also, obviously, this idea that oftentimes, and when we think about belonging, what we will be thinking about is also about citizenship and the rights granted in the state. But that, of, but in reality, often when we're talking about belonging, that's not exactly what we're talking about. It's something larger that's not contingent on citizenship, um, as John was saying. Stephen, you wanted to um, contribute as well. Well, I'll be brief unless um, you want to wrap us up in the next few minutes here with some concluding thoughts. But I, I want to also just raise a point around epistemology. How do we determine what's true? How do we determine what information to care about? It feels to me that either whether we're talking about citizenship or whether we're talking about bridging, if we have an inability to arrive at um, what we consider to be valid information, uh, which is certainly one of the problems in the United States, it's hard for me to imagine they're not being very clunky, difficult, continued impasses in our society. And I'll just give one example and then be quiet. Um, I was listening to an evangelical um, speaker yesterday who talked about there being a very large contingent of the evangelical population that believes that Donald Trump was prophesied to be the president of the United States and that he would have a huge role to play. And that conviction was a big part of why the white evangelical community was the core of Donald Trump's base subpopulation that had the highest percentage of support for him. How do we navigate that when we can't, there's no mechanism of arriving at a shared conclusion if one of the premises is, well, God told me the answer already. And so I think there's more, I'm less optimistic about bridging um, perspectives only through conversation without there being more of a convergence around shared values and a common method of shared epistemology. And I think in, in Western societies where we've seen more of that, such as in Germany, we see a more functional conversation. Um, and I see that as an impasse, at least in the United States and other places. But I'm curious if others have thoughts on that before <laughs> we wrap up. Stephen, you're coming in with the hard questions today. Um, and I hate to take up so much airspace, but 
in a sense, Stephen, I, I start from a different pre premise. I think of Kenneth Arendt, who talks about uh, when you have total truth, you have totalitarianism. So I don't think the goal is to get to some absolute truth. And I think one of the dangers, frankly, of religions are just thinking that they do have sacred truth. But we live in a society that's apparently pluralistic. And one of the discussions I have with my dad when I talk about this, he's passed away, is that, you know, you want to decide from your faith, what do you do with someone who has a different faith? Do you wipe that person out? You say that person doesn't count? You say that person's God is not real? So part of it is not, as you said, uh, democracy can't be about always winning. Uh, and so how do you live with people? How do you come together with people who are different than you? Uh, and it can't be, well, in good faith, we disagree on, on even if there's a God, right? Doesn't mean, therefore, you can't live together. So I think, I think the problem is not quite as, as sticky as you're making it. Um, my caring and loving for my father was not because we agreed on the, the, the teaching of the Bible. That was a sacred book to him. It was just a book to me. Uh, but, but we did agree on something. We came together on our shared humanity, on our caring for each other. And I cared about him. I still care about him. So uh, there's a saying that uh, love goes many places understanding cannot. Uh, and so caring for people is not the same as just agreeing with them. So I think um, while there's, it doesn't make the issue goes away, I think it reframes it. Thank you, John. I want to give, um, well, extend my gratitude to all of the speakers for this wonderful conversation. I will give you all one minute for final remarks if you wish to share any. So Nani, we'll start with you. Yeah, thank you for the for the wonderful conversation. Lots of food for thought and lots of uh, strands of this conversation that I'd like to continue uh, at a later stage. Um, I guess that the main thing that I'll be pondering over the over the coming hours and, and probably the coming days is um, how do you operationalize some of these uh, really beautiful visions, right, for for a different uh, kind of society and uh, uh, this concept of belonging. Um, there's one kind of like interesting kind of like through line that I'm seeing from some of the really difficult conversations we've been having over the past months in the in the consultation process uh, at Systemic Justice, where we've been talking about challenges, right, that, that people are seeing um, when it comes to racial, social and economic justice in Europe. And that in almost every single conversation there, this idea of indeed like um, having that there has to be, that love has to be central uh, in all of these struggles has come up. Um, and uh, I find it really beautiful that it came back uh, in, in this conversation regularly as well. Um, and yeah, it's about how can we hang on to, to that vision uh, to that positive sentiment uh, in a context where, you know, as our <laughs> the debates about citizenship just illustrated, how how do you operationalize that in a context where you still have to deal with very specific structures and processes in our societies? Um, yeah, that you have to contend with some of which we might be able to change also. But um, yeah, this is an interesting tension and uh, something I'd love to explore a bit further. Thank you. Thank you, Nani. Rocio? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Miriam, um, for this fantastic and finished conversation, as all clever conversations, more answers than questions. That's my, my final conclusion, uh, because the big question of how do we combine agreement and disagreement with or belonging and bridging 
without, you know, meeting personally the other, like more than father and son relation? How, how do we do it? I don't know, but I know that in this conversation, we have to bring back uh, concepts, very classic concepts, such as politics, such as power, uh, such as institutions, how do we reform institutions for that, diversity, and new ideas, because it's always also a matter of, 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 of values and ideas. Thanks, Rocío. Muchas gracias. Steven? Thanks so much, everyone. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think what gives me hope at the moment is seeing people who engage in vulnerability and who are sincere and risk seeming naive in their efforts to try and turn society into a place where there's more trust and where there's um, more functional democracy. Um, so uh, I hope to be one of those people and, and, and very much admire each of you for playing that role as well. Let's continue to be ambitious and even risk seeming naive in our effort to uh, avoid the trends continuing to worsen. Thank you so much. And John? Thank you, Miriam, and thank all of you for uh, spending um, the last hour and a half, and I wish we could spend more time. Uh, and I think um, these are difficult problems, but they're not intractable. Yeah, I think one of the roles of institutions and structures is to help us hold together when we do disagree. Uh, but right now, those institutions are fraying themselves. I think we have, we don't have any choice but to figure this out. If we're going to have a world where we all belong, in a world that's worth living, a world that's not burning constantly, we have no choice but to figure it out. And we have to figure it out on multiple levels, both at a personal level, institutional level, and a power level. And I think if we pay attention to it, we can do that. So thank you for the conversation. Thank you to John A. Powell, Rocío Martinez-Sampere, Stephen Hawkins, and Nanny Jansen-Bravenlaw for this moving conversation. Special thanks to you for listening to Uncommon Threads. Do not forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what we do, consider rating us. You can find out more about our show and the work of the forum at democracyandbelongingforum.org. Our team includes Johnny Powell, Sarah Grossman, Evan Yoshimoto, Mina Gerkis, Cecily Zoraski, Asima Sizemore, and me, Miriam Juan Torres. Intro music is by Curtis Cole, and the music you're listening to is by Quintas Moreira. Additional music credits can be found in the show notes. That's it for this episode. See you next month.